And I'll be reading verses 14 through 22 of Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich, and white garments to clothe you, and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and chasten. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. He who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22 is a letter from Jesus to the church at Laodicea in Asia Minor. It was given to John in a vision, according to chapter 1. All these letters were. And the purpose of this letter is to save this church from lukewarmness and consequent destruction. It's a message that every church needs to hear, I think, especially at the beginning of a week of concerted prayer and fasting which is where we stand at Bethlehem. These are solemn words of counsel and love, and they're addressed to a church that is content with where it is spiritually and thinks that it needs no more of Christ than it already has. And so anyone who thinks that we don't need a week of prayer and fasting at the outset of 1983, needs to read this letter from the Lord to Bethlehem again and again and again. And so I want to read it once with you this morning and perhaps just enable you to read it with greater effect later on during the week. Let's look at it together. Verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That's Jesus identifying himself there. So in this letter, Jesus is about to bear witness against the church of Laodicea, and he's about to deliver an awful threat to a lukewarm church. And what he's doing then, and it's very fitting that he do it in verse 14, is identify himself as one with the credibility and the power to say such things, such threats, such promises, such counselings. When he says, for example, that he is the Amen, he means that he is reliable, firm, trustworthy. 
God's yes to all the divine promises. That word amen is simply the transliteration of a Hebrew word that means firm, reliable, faithful, so that you can tell what John is doing or Jesus through John is defining amen by the next phrase. He is the amen, namely the faithful and true. That's what amen means. Witness. So this letter is not to be taken lightly, in other words. It's addressed by the amen, by the faithful and true witness. It's the word of God to our need, and we ought to be able to say at the end of it a very hearty amen. It's the word of Christ. Now, regarding the next phrase, the beginning of God's creation, the Jehovah's Witnesses, along with the Arians of the fourth century, would take that phrase To mean that Christ is a part of creation, the beginning part, and therefore is an angel. To be sure, the greatest and highest angel, the first angel through whom all the other creatures were made, but nevertheless, not God, but creature. So when one knocks on your door and comes into your living room and tells you that, here's what you should say. You should say Well, couldn't it be that the phrase the beginning of God's creation means just as easily that from which creation begins source of creation that from which it begins just as easily as meaning the beginning part of creation. And they might say, oh, no, I don't I don't think it can mean that. That's not the normal way to take such a phrase. And then you would say, but over in chapter five of Revelation, verse 13 and 14 God and the Lamb are being worshipped by every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That seems to exclude Christ as a creature. And over in chapter 19, verse 10, when John falls down and worships an angel, the angel rebukes him and says, God alone is to be worshipped. So how can John picture Christ as being worshipped in chapter 5, verse 13? And then condemn John for trying to worship an angel if Christ is a mere angel. Now, I think that's a satisfactory response and an adequate reason for taking this phrase to mean what it very easily can mean. Namely, the beginning of creation in the sense that he's the place where all creation starts. It means what John said in John 1, 3, where he said, In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and without him was not anything made that was made through him. All things were made. So what Jesus has done for us then at the outset of this letter is identify himself as God, the son and as the amen, the true and faithful witness and as one who can fulfill his threats. And keep his promises. So perk up the ears, Laodicea and Bethlehem. Let's see what he has to say. Verses 15 and 16 bring his indictment of the church and delivers his threat. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, And neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. His indictment against the church is that they are half-hearted. 
in their relation to him. They do not have the fervor, the warmth, the zeal of a true lover of Christ. They're not outright unbelievers. They don't flatly reject Jesus, make no pretense of faith. They're sort of halfway in between. Christ has a a moderate influence upon their lives. They don't get too excited or go overboard about the creator of all. In their prayer life, I think it would be fair to say they pray before meals and they probably pause for two or three minutes before bedtime and say their prayers. But they don't burn with a desire for more of God. They don't go hard after God in the secret place. They don't fling all the doors of their self open wide. They keep closed the innermost places of their emotions. They keep Christ, as it were, on the porch and have cool, lukewarm business dealings with him through the mail slot, as it were, or opening enough so that the chain catches it and they can Talk to him, but don't let him get too close or involve himself too much in what moves us most deeply in our emotions. Now, Jesus has a word to such people, and here it is. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. If you tried to, if you tried to choose an image that would shock lukewarm Christians and be gross, you couldn't choose a better image. He takes the cup of the church and puts it to his mouth for some pleasing refreshment and he spits it on the ground. Now, no matter how hard I try, I cannot make that mean that such people will, after all, be saved and enjoy the blessings and the fellowship of Jesus Christ for all eternity. Surely the image of spitting people out on the ground means he rejects them as unacceptable. The faith that saves is not lukewarm faith. And he warns Laodicea, And every other church in the 20th century, if you do not repent, as verse 19 says, and become zealous, which is just another word for hot. Then he's going to spit you out eventually. And I think just we could stop right there and say those are those two verses are ample reason to have a a week of prayer and fasting at Bethlehem, aren't they? That's enough. You don't need to go any farther to know that we've got an agenda set for us in a week of prayer and fasting because the paint isn't peeling off these walls due to the temperature inside. Now, in verse 17. Jesus tells us that an essential part of lukewarmness is ignorance of our true spiritual condition 
and yet satisfaction with the way we are. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. I need nothing. I need nothing. Not knowing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor, blind, naked. Here's the way to take your spiritual temperature this morning. Do you feel in your heart a great need for a week of prayer and fasting? The essence of lukewarmness is the sentence, I don't need it. I need nothing. I have enough of Jesus. I walked the aisle one day and he came into my heart and I have him. I don't need anything. The lukewarm are spiritually self-satisfied. To find out whether you are among that number now, don't look in your head and ask whether you think that you're a sinner, because you all do. You've been well taught. The way to tell whether you are among the number of the spiritually self-satisfied is to look at your prayer life. There's the barometer. To tell whether we are in the bondage to spiritual self-satisfaction, the question is how frequently, how earnestly, how expectantly, how extendedly. Do you strive with God to have a deeper knowledge with Christ, greater earnestness in prayer, more boldness in witness, sweeter joy in the Holy Spirit? Do you long for deeper sorrow for sin, warmer compassion for the lost, more divine power to love? Are you going after God in your prayer life hard every day, often long? And if not, that's the barometer. Of whether you're spiritually self-satisfied, not what you think about yourself in your head. Does the coolness and the perfunctoriness of your prayer life stack up to exhibit a that you are spiritually satisfied and therefore lukewarm and therefore on the verge of being spit out of his mouth? Now, Jesus has a word to you and to me if we think we need nothing at the beginning of 1983, if there's no sense of desperation in our hearts for change. People who think that it's a bit melodramatic, a little overdoing it a little bit to uh, have an all night prayer meeting on Friday. As though there were some volcano about to come down upon us. Well, there is in verse 14 and 15, a volcano about to come down on lukewarm people. Here's what Jesus word of uh, assessment is. You are, in fact, wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Now, remember, that's Jesus talking. I didn't choose those words for sermonic effect. Those are the words of Jesus. That's the way he looks down through that ceiling upon churchgoers 
who don't have any passion for change in your life, who are quite content to go on day in and day out with two minutes with the Lord. And such churchgoers, if they don't begin to do something to change, will eventually be spit out of his mouth. Now, that's the threat and that's the indictment. Here comes, in verse 18, the counsel. Counseling is big business today. And uh, many of you with me are involved in it. And I just want to say in passing, don't just read books about counseling. Study the master counselor. See that word counsel there in verse 18? This is counseling at its best. Threat, promise. We're going to see the sweetest promise you ever heard before we're done. But before he gets there, the awful threat. Here comes the counsel, the word in between. What are they to do? Therefore, I counsel you, buy from me gold refined by fire that you may be rich, white garments to clothe you, Keep your shame, your nakedness from being seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Christ's will for the church is not to spit it out. His will for the church is that our poverty be replaced with wealth, that our nakedness and shame be clothed with robes of righteousness and obedience and that our blindness be healed so that we see like God sees and assess everything the way he does. And there's only one place where we can get that gold, those garments and that medicine, and that's Jesus himself. And that's why he says, buy from me gold. Now, how do you buy gold when you're broke? He just said you are poor, blind, naked, miserable, wretched. Not only poor, not only broke, but blind. You can't do any work. You can't earn any money when you're blind. And not only blind, naked. You can't even go out of your closet. How do you get the wealth of Christ? Robes of righteousness and obedience and power to love, salve, to make us wise with the wisdom of God when you can't even go out of your closet. The answer is in verse 20. You don't go out of your closet. You open the door and let Jesus in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. Now, that verse uh, can be applied with uh, legitimacy to unbelievers. But that's not its meaning here. I want to drive that home. That verse is addressed to lukewarm Christians who think they have Christ sufficiently. And he's just out there knocking on the door of the Christian's heart. It's addressed to lukewarm Christians who think they don't need any more of Christ. We've got his riches. We've got his garments. We've got his medicine. And he says, you don't. You're poor, blind, miserable, naked and pitiable. 
People who keep the door shut on the most inner room of their lives. People who want to keep the Lord on the porch and deal with him like a salesman. You might want to buy the thing, but you don't want him to come in. Mixed up in the deep places of your life. Christ did not die to purify a bride who would keep him on the porch while she watches TV in the den. His will for the church is that we open the door, all the doors of our lives. He wants to join you. This is that sweet promise. He wants to join you in the dining room of your life, light a candle, spread the table, sit down with you, talk for an hour. Just try to imagine the favorite meal you've ever enjoyed with the nearest and dearest friend you've ever had. That's the experience Jesus wants with everybody in this room. And he's knocking right now and asking for it. Wouldn't you take the time for me, please, an hour so that I can eat with you and you with me? And when Jesus Christ comes into the room, he brings with him all the gold all the garments and all the medicine in the world. To have Jesus is to have everything. So how do you buy gold when you're broke? You pray. You start opening all the doors of the deep recesses of your life and you appeal to him to come into every single sphere and be at home and sup with you and you with him. I just confess very personally, there is an intimate communion and fellowship with Jesus I crave in 1983. This sermon is a sermon for me. I'm not I'm not damning you. I preach the way I do because I want so bad to have the fullness of Jesus Christ more than I've known him before. And I want us to share it as a congregation. And when he comes and dwells in the innermost room of our affections, there's going to be power. Power to love. That's what we all want more than anything, I said on New Year's Eve. Power to overcome all the crummy desires that pull us around by the nose and lord it over us. When Jesus comes in and has dinner with you by candlelight, you've got power to overcome all the allurements of the world. And when you've got power, you conquer. And so the text ends with a promise to conquerors. He who conquers, verse 21, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I myself conquer and sat down on my father's throne. Christ conquered sin and Satan and death by Never swerving from the way of love. It cost him his life. And he gained the world. And now there he is, owner. Beginning of all God's creation. And he says something utterly unspeakable to Bethlehem Baptist Church. He says, if you'll just conquer, you will reign over the universe with me. I mean, I don't know how that promise hits you that you're going to sit 
on the throne of Christ, which is the throne of God. And Jesus is standing right here. This is his letter. okay? and he's saying, if you conquer, you'll reign with me. I mean, if you've got desires for power. Here's the agenda for prayer week. And the only way we are going to have the resources to conquer is if we open the door and let the almighty Christ come in and eat with us. Conquer what? Conquer the menace of lukewarmness. That's what's got to be conquered. There is a an infinite difference between reigning with Christ and being spit out of the mouth of the Lord. And the difference is whether we are hot. Or not. And that's what prayer week at Bethlehem is all about in these next seven days. That the power of Christ might dwell in us. Now, I'm going to take the remaining few minutes to explain the opportunities that you're going to have this coming week for concerted prayer. But before we do that, let's pray together. Lord, there are some of us here today whose hearts are so hungry. We've tasted enough in our life with you to know that there is a meal to be enjoyed of which we've only had the appetizer. And I pray with those people right now, we unite our hearts as a church. Come, Lord Jesus, we open the door, we fling it wide, move in on us, ravish us with your holiness and your beauty. Cause us to take the opportunities of a week of concerted prayer at the beginning of 1983 to go for broke as we go for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to invite the ushers now to pass out what I'm going to call the uh, seed plots of prayer week. And I want every individual here Junior high and up to have one of these husbands and wives don't share one because these are helps for you to be alone with God this week. And when you all get one, I'll go over some of these opportunities with you while the ushers are passing those out. If you get extra ones, you can just leave them in the pew while they're passing those out. I want to thank uh, Paul Lindbergh and Barb Beck and Mike Rowe, who have served as a sort of ad hoc committee for prayer week with me to help plan the opportunities that we're going to lay before you this morning to go after God. I know many of you remember what happened last week. We had those daily prayer times from noon to one in the conference room and you could come and go and we fasted every day at noontime and God began to do some remarkable things in those prayer meetings, answering some very peculiar needs in our lives. And I want us to Double those efforts this year to get to God or to get all the locks off the door so he can just walk right in. Let me stress that what you have in front of you is not a list of commandments. It's a list of opportunities. I know that we're all different in our health. We're all different in our schedules. We're all different in our temperaments. And we can't all do the same thing in prayer week. This is opportunity for those of you who can avail yourselves of as many as possible. So let me show you from this front page here what 
we're about this week. There are five things. First of all, there are services. You all got one? Let me just point out the services. Now, follow with me instead of reading ahead in these. Close them up now, please, so we can all follow. You'll get a chance to take these home. They're all yours. No hurry. On the front page, we will have worship this morning and next Sunday on prayer. Next Sunday, it will be on persevering in prayer all through 1983. Then tonight, something really special that I know will be helpful. I'm so eager for it myself. It's a panel See under January 2 there, a practical help for your prayer life. I've asked four of you, two men and two women, to share briefly on what they found practically helpful in a life of prayer. Then we're going to throw it open for the congregation to ask questions to the panel and to me. Just to air all the nitty-gritty problems you have in a prayer life. How do you do it? Just very practically. It's no good if we all go out of here this morning just filled with hunger to pray and we get home and we... We just don't know where to begin. We don't know how to how to have 10 minutes in prayer, let alone an hour in prayer. So come back tonight for practical insights. Then next Sunday night, there'll be an evening of what has God done? No sermon. I'm just so completely confident that God is going to work through our prayers this week that we'll just take 35 minutes or 40 minutes to talk to each other about what he's done in the middle of the week is what we usually call our prayer meeting. This week, it'll be just like last year. We'll have solid prayer and worship songs and nothing else. Last year, that chapel was packed because many of you said, I want to begin the year earnestly seeking God with the whole body, not just in little groups. Would you do that again this year? Wednesday night at 715. Let's all gather in the chapel for a solid hour of prayer. Those are the services. And that room right behind that curtain over there is available during every service for those of you who'd like to support me and the people in prayer. So those of you who feel called during one of the services in the morning can go back there. Here's the second thing that's available. Sessions of prayer every day at noon here in the conference room downstairs. What I'd like to ask as many of you as feel called with me to do it is to fast every noontime this week. Drink a glass of tea and you'll make it easy to supper. And let the hunger pangs that come just go right up to heaven. I'm hungry for you. That's what a fast means. Every time you feel hungry, it's a prayer and you just send it right on. So come, if you can, from your work area or from home, meet from 12 to 1. You can come and go as you like if if your lunch break doesn't coincide with those hours. And if perchance you can't make it here, maybe some of you could gather at home or in a workplace or just individually fast and pray for a little while that God would move. And here's some things you can pray for at the bottom of this front page. So those are the sessions every day, Monday through Saturday. I'll be here every day. Other members of the staff will be here every day. Third thing, a night of prayer, January 7th, Friday, something we've never tried before. I don't know whether you've ever done it at Beth uh, at Bethlehem before I came. I have to check with with Elsie to see whether or not in her tenure, at least they've had a whole night of prayer. Let me read this. A night of prayer. What might God do 
If we long for him enough to spend a whole night in prayer, join us and find out. For most of us, it'll be the first time. They do it every week in Korea. The night has been well planned into 11 units of time with hourly breaks for refreshments and for coming and going and fellowship. There will be designated leaders for each unit and topic focuses. It won't be as hard as you think, I suspect. You'll come out of this saying, hey, we ought to do that once a year. And I suspect that we will from now on. Now, I know health and various things will keep some of you away. Some of us are going to try it. I've never stayed up all night. I never pulled an all-nighter in college. But I'm going to try. If I get sleepy, I'll lie down for one of the hours. But we're really flexible. We'll go 50 minutes, break 10, 50, break 10. So you can come and go. If some of you want to catch some Z's up till 1, then come from 1 to 8. If some of you want to come till 2, then go home and sleep. It's free. Come at any hour and you'll, you won't be out of place. Then we'll have a great breakfast and celebration. Frankly, one of the things I'm looking forward to as much as any is just being with you for how many hours is that? I don't know, 11 hours or so. I, I just think in those break times and prayer times, there's going to be some beautiful things happening between the people who are there. So if it's just a little core of us, the rest of you will benefit from our prayer. So pray for us if you happen to wake up in the middle of the night that we stay awake. Then two other things. There are books of prayer. There's a book table out here with just loads of books on it. You can sign up to buy them or borrow them or get them from the library. Next week, we'll have stacks for sale as well. And incidentally, our library is really well provided with books on prayer. So if you want to take that and you'll notice at the bottom of every one of these seed plots, I have books on prayer. So turn to these. This is the last thing. And then we're done. What I've done here is try to make a page a day for you in your private time with God. And it'll be a great thing at Bethlehem if we're all sort of doing the same thing morning or afternoon or whenever you can get alone. A quote at the top of the page from some prayer warrior that has stirred me up in 1982 and then texts on the duty of prayer, the promise of prayer, the method of prayer, biblical examples of prayer. Jesus experience of prayer and books on prayer. Let's I don't know how long you have take you probably half an hour to uh, pray through a sheet like that and look up the texts that aren't quoted there. I call it a seed plot for prayer because those are seeds. And if you sow them in your heart, all kinds of flowers of thanksgiving and petition and praise and worship will grow up out of your mouth. One other thing. If you got a bulletin this morning, a little prayer guide for how to read through the Bible in a year was in it. Now, if you didn't get one, we have a few more in the church office that you, and you can stop by. You cannot pray in a sustained way without the Bible. I just confess to you that I never pray more than five minutes without the Bible. I used to tell my students there's only one way to pray. With your elbows on either side of the Bible, whether you're kneeling or sitting, the Bible is the main seed bed of prayer. And therefore, let's as many of you as feel led, pray through the Bible in 1983. The, the fun thing about this little brochure is that uh, you can tuck it in your Bible as a bookmark and it goes chronologically. You just don't read through. You follow sort of the history of redemption as you read through the Bible. And I think it'd just be great if many of you were making an effort 
to read through the Bible. Now I close with a verse from Jeremiah. Here's God talking to Bethlehem and every individual in Bethlehem. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will come to me and you will call on me and I will hear you. Then you will seek me and find me. And then here's the key sentence for prayer week. When you seek me with all your heart. He will not be found by pop calls. He will be found when we seek him as a church with all our heart. And I am so excited to seek him with you this week.